Our guest on this episode is Dick Lester AM, Executive Chairman of Lester Group and legendary real estate investment pioneer. In a career spanning in excess of 50 years, Dick has been at the forefront of the commercial property industry in Australia, having built a diverse career of experiences across the disciplines of real estate sales, market research, valuations, acquisitions and property trusts. Alongside Greg Paramore AO, Dick was the founder and chief executive officer of Growth Equities Mutual, one of the nation's original unlisted property trusts, which grew to encompass some $1.6 billion of assets under management before later being sold to Lendlease Corporation in 1994. He has also held a number of corporate positions, including as a board member of West Farmers Limited for a period of 13 years, chairman of the Western Australian Institute for Medical Research for a period of seven years, and a member of the Murdoch University Senate for a period of six years. Dick is also a noted philanthropist and patron of the arts, having established the Lester Prize for Visual Art, in addition to contributions to education, health and medical research. So, Dick, pleasure to be speaking with you this afternoon. I thought we'd open our discussion with the current state of play. What are the key trends you're seeing occur across the commercial property sector? Well, values are going up, Rob, and they're going up to a scary extent where we've got a world that's awash with cash and uh, we're, in, we're in an era where it's buy any asset at any price because tomorrow it's going to be worth more. And we're seeing that in the property sector. We're seeing that with Bitcoin. We're seeing that with Elon Musk's shares. There are whole examples around the world of this trend. It's scary. And it means that lower quality, less, less than prime property is selling at prices which are higher than appropriate. They're just not bringing, they're not, not valuing risk. The market is accepting tenants of, very, of, of less than prime quality are going to continue to pay their rent in the same way as prime tenants are. There's not a market margin between a prime tenant and, and another corporation which is agreed to, pay, to a lease, and that's very concerning. We've now, over the last week, month or so, started to see inflation creeping to our to, to, the, to the world economies. It started, of course, in the US. I think it's probably also fairly strong in the in Europe, although we're not seeing that reported very much. And of course, we're now seeing starting to have it reported here in Australia. And I think that that's going to result in interest rates starting to be reviewed upwards. The risk is obviously on the upside. And uh, you know, I see the outlook as being a time where caution is really required. And uh, we've got to move very carefully that we don't pay prime real estate pricing values on subprime quality properties. That's so easy to do. And then in terms of the broader economy, how confident are you on the strength of the rebound forecast for next year? particularly given the impacts that have been endured as a consequence of, say, the past 18 or 20 months? I come to you from a very privileged position. We've been free and open within our state borders now for 12 months or so. I just can't put the date on when we came out of the last lockdown, which was only for three or five days or something. It was very minor. Um, so our economy has been bubbling along very well. 
We, of course, uh, a cloud on the horizon is the iron ore price. Our state economy is very much locked into the iron ore industry, which is just an absolutely beautiful industry. It's uh, sophisticated, it's highly capitalised, it's well-managed, it's well-marketed, uh, and uh, it's uh, while the price is, has come down from atmospheric highs, as it was in May and June, it's now down at a more sensible price. I think it'll bump along here at this pre present level for a while and generally flucked up to about $1.50 or $1.55, $1.60 a tonne. Now, bearing in mind, that's a very, very satisfactory price. Uh, Fortescue Metals Chairman Andrew Forrest in the, in the Boyer Lectures of 2021, which were recorded in January, perhaps early February, he said he made a statement that Fortescue Metals Group made a net profit for the month of December 2020 of 948 million. One month, 948 million. And at that time, the iron ore price was in the dollar, it was $140, $45. So we're not all that far off it, off that level. And that level of profit, of profit occurred when it was at about a dollar, $145 dollars a tonne. So I think our iron ore industry is in great shape. It doesn't need $220 a tonne. Of course, there are peripheral players that are high cost operators who do, who, who do require the, the, high, the high prices, but the main key producers of BHP, Rio, Fortescue, and uh, Gina Reinhardt slash Hancock uh, don't need those level of prices to make very, very satisfactory profits. In fact, obese profits. So our, our economy is in good shape. Um, we're having great trouble with labour. We're about to have a, a very, very good rural season. I wouldn't be surprised if we have a record harvest. I've come down from the Gascoigne River through the wheat belt about a fortnight ago, and the crops are looking marvellous. We've just had some uh, heavy unseasonable rain, which has stopped the harvest, but hopefully it'll get going again in another couple of days. We want it to dry up now, and, uh, and we've, we've got a bin burster of a crop coming in. I'm interested to get a gauge on which asset classes or types you're most bullish on and the extent to which you're actively pursuing opportunities within these sectors we spoke offline that you were looking at a few assets in Sydney. Where are you seeing value, if you are seeing it? We've been looking at um, large format retail. That is a class of property which we find to be very viable and very manageable. There's quite a range of tenants available in that space. So you don't need to be focused on a small group of tenants. You've got a number of alternatives in each class, but LFR is where we're at at the moment. We think that uh, that's a class that's going to maintain its income, and we've been our experience is that that's we've been able to achieve that. Our business is essentially a funds management business, where we're a key investor, and we do it through property syndication. We are investing for income and security of income, and we're finding it best in the large format retail space at the moment.
To the contrary, take me through your perspective on which segments of the markets are either overvalued or likely challenged. CBD retail, I think, is challenged, particularly here in Perth. We're having a lot of problems with vacancy and uh, it's uh, we've got a big investment by the, in, in the industry super funds in particularly CBD retail. I'm very concerned about the immediate future for that, for that type of property. They're expensive properties to own. They're expensive properties to run and maintain and, and renovate and reposition. And uh, that space is, is difficult. Office space, I think, is going to rebound, but not to a high level. I think with COVID-19, there's been this rush to work from home and all that sort of stuff. Nobody is talking about corporate culture and how important corporate culture is to the success of a business. And it's absolutely important that the chief executives manages the business to develop the corporate culture and move it where it needs to move in order to be competitive in the market. And that's just not possible if you've got your staff dispersed in their own homes all the time. And uh, we here have been open throughout. I think we closed for about a week in the first lockdown, first of about three short lockdowns. But then we opened the office and we said we expect everybody to be here and that continues. I think that corporate Australia will do that. So office space is going to continue, but like all city real estate, there's going to be a very low differential between prime and subprime. Before we move on, I'd thought I'd get your take on the management of COVID by both state and federal governments, particularly given the isolation to other parts of the country that's being experienced across Western Australia uh, as a result of outbreaks in, in Victoria and New South Wales. Mark McGowan, obviously uber popular over there. How would you assess his performance and, and the performance of the federal government? Look, I think as a, as a citizen of West Australia, you've got you've to be pretty positive about the way that the state has managed the COVID-19 pandemic. We've got a very big land mass in our state, and it's just amazing how people are finding beautiful places to go and visit and, and to be tourists at, uh, and the tourism industry internally within WA, particularly the low-priced section of the of the tourist industry, the family end is just going gangbusters. Having problems with labour, but going gangbusters. The part of the tourist industry that's reliant on external tourists coming in, of course, that's really, really in a lot of trouble and will continue to be for some time, I think. Look, I think that they're doing a fantastic job, a very good job. Myself and my wife, we're happily vaccinated, fully vaccinated with AZ. Uh, we're very happy with AZ. Uh, AZ got a bad rap publicly, publicly. I think that was a great pity and I think it was wrong. But then the breaks, they're the breaks. The government has recovered from that now with a plentiful supply of Pfizer. We're looking forward to a booster shot in due course. When, when it's available, we'll take it. Whether it be another AZ or whether it be a Pfizer is another question. 
we'll take our, our, our GP's advice on that. But I think the federal feds and the state have managed it pretty well. We'll get to your current interest via Leicester Group shortly. But before we do, I thought it'd be worthwhile to get an understanding of your background. As I understand it, you're educated in Melbourne and did your valuation training there. Take me through the early years. Well, I was a, I'm a product of the Box Hill High School and uh, I uh, had a burning ambition to be a farmer when I was a schoolboy. School so I went to Duke Agricultural College in central Victoria and graduated there. I was one of two or three that got honours and um, I also did my matricula. I, I did extend, did further subjects to be able to get a matriculation, which was where you got entry to university level. I've never actually been to formal university, but I've done professional training. I went farming as a share paid manager of a farm in the Western District of Victoria, and that was a very happy trip. Came out of there with some, uh, I, I decided to take a change into real estate where there was a whole range of opportunities available at the time because I wanted to go into the valuation side and the particularly rural valuers were in demand in, in, in Victoria at the time. But after evaluating all the opportunities, I decided to take an urban opportunity and go selling real estate while I did my valuation course, which I did at night at the RMIT. Um, it's just amazing that professional education today is full-time. We, we did a five or six-year course at night and, and uh, crust during the day, and that was quite normal. And while it was a heavy load and it put, it put a burden on the students, you just got to suck it up and do it. So we did. During this period, I, uh, I made sure that I was heavily involved with the what was with the property, the forerunner of the property council, which at that time was the Commonwealth Institute of Valuers. And they had annual seminars and annual conventions. And I made sure that I took the time off and took myself to those, to those functions and extended my knowledge and professional standing by attending. Uh, it was well before professional development of the CBD points. That, that didn't come to later, but that was all good. That exposed me to a whole range of people that were going to become very important in my later life. And uh, I came in contact through that medium with a fellow called Cummings, who was a partner in a company in, in Perth called Milner & Company, Eric Cummings. And uh, he finished up on my doorstep one night and invited me to come to Perth. And uh, we, over a period of a month, we negotiated a, a deal uh, where they would put me on as a salaried valuer. And at the end of six months, they would either off, offer me a, a share in the partnership or alternatively invite my resignation. So that happened and they... Happily, they offered me a share in the partnership, and I entered as a one-eighth partner, and uh, that was a that was a, a very good trip. Getting coming over to Perth, yes, sure they needed valuers, but they needed salespeople more. The, the, the real estate business had a lot of unsold property listings that 
I judge were pretty competitive in the market. They needed to be picked up, marketed and sold. Uh, and I did that. And uh, that was a successful part of my coming over to Perth. Of course, during this period, I, I arrived over in July and started with Milner and Company on August the 1st, 1966. So I was 28 and I had a young, had a family uh, of a, a young son, six months old at the time. So I flew my wife and my son over. I drove over. I drove our third hand Ford Falcon motor car across the Nullarbor, which was eight years, eight to 10 years before it was sealed. It was a long trip, a long trip. Uh, my father, who was retiring at the time, came with me and, and he flew back. He, he accompanied me over, which I was very happy with. It was a very fruitful time. Anyway, uh, time moved on and uh, the nickel boom started. And that brought attention onto the West Australian economy and Perth in particular. So we started to see the Eastern States investment funds start to start to take attention, particularly the, the corporate superannuation funds, who had been very insular previously. I remember well having a meeting with the chief executive of the CSR fund, superannuation fund, who said, Perth, he said, if I can't see it out this window, I'm not interested. <laughs> But that started to change with the nickel boom. And, uh, of course, the iron ore industry was in its infancy. It certainly started, but they were in their infancy. They were still building, they were still building the first stages of what are now is just a, an amazingly, beautifully engineered, sophisticated industry. World leaders, the eastern states population, do not understand and never come to grips with how, what good equality businesses they are and how important it is to they are to our economy. So I, I connected with the iron ore industry and uh, professionally and that was that was good. Uh, I came in contact with a fellow called Stan Perrin. Stan Perrin is a, mate, a, a lifelong friend of mine. Sadly he passed away at the age of about 92, 93 about four years ago, three, three, four years ago. The world lost a great man when Stan passed away. Stan was had an interest, had many interests, but one in the Lang Hancock Peter Wright royalties. Uh, he'd rub staked Hancock and Wright. That's a a term that is not used today, but it's very descriptive and it's it's absolutely actual. <laughs> and uh, he bought a lot of real estate through me from me as agent, and we had a great. And, and, we, and I went into partnership with Stan, uh, developing and investing. But of course, the partnership was limited by my capacity to, to contribute 50% of the funds. So Stan said to me, Dick, I'll lend you a million dollars unsecured on the following terms. Our partnership had been borrowing money from AGC, Australian Guaranteed Corporation, which um, was a, a, a subsidiary of, the, of what's now the Westpac Bank, uh, the Bank of New South Wales at the time. And uh, we were borrowing money from them in our partnership. He'll say, he said, you pay me the interest equivalent to the, the, the AGC money, what AGC are charging us. I have the right to approve every project 
and uh, we'll split the profits 50-50. This was a fantastic opportunity. 1972, this is. So you've got to put, cast your mind back to where West Australia was at in 1972. And I went to Caratha and I did a, a whole range of quite major for the time, small now when you look back, but quite major uh, design and construct projects in Caratha. And they were contracts with the state government to build public works offices. I, I built several banks. I built several buildings, which I then were occupied by banks. I built the Road Traffic Authority facility in Carafa uh, as a design and construct. It was a turnkey. There were no, there were no progress payments. We, we, we agreed a plan and specification and a price. We then went and built it on their land. And then at the end, we had an inspection and uh, they accepted the property. I handed over the key and within seven days, I got a check of the agreed amount. We made a lot of money. I did 17 projects in that area, not all for the state government, but going up there, it took me into that environment and the, the marine industry was starting up because of, of, the, of the marine activity in Dampier and we built a whole range of townhouses, sold them to to marine company, did things for Rio, in total 17 projects. And that was a very successful relationship with Stan. It was exactly what was needed in that type of relationship, short-term cash realisation, uh, projects that were going to go for a year or 18 months, are going to be realised for cash at the end, uh, with a cat, where you can measure your profits, and um, it really worked and Stan's and my relationship were, were very, were first class right through to the day he passed away. Of course, all these, all these relationships come to a very natural end when I go off doing other things and Stan goes off doing other things and we, we had a very managed dispersal of our portfolio of assets and we settled them out in total agreement and everybody went to lunch. <laughs> so and were, then, that was a very important part of my life and then speaking of relationships you also built another relationship with greg paramore who we've also been fortunate enough to have on the program and on this occasion it was the establishment and launch of a business called growth equities mutual tell me how you first came across greg and what the opportunity was that you both sought to launch growth equities in milner and company we were starting to get into quite a lot of commercial property and we needed a commercial property manager and Greg was recruited to be that commercial property manager. But he had very good marketing skills and sales skills and quickly morphed into being a leasing salesman. And I met Greg at Milner & Company. Um, I should say, while I was at Milner & Company, Milner & Company changed, took an opportunity of... An, of linking up with a large new client called St. Martin's Properties Australia, Proprietary Limited, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of St. Martin's Properties London, a, a typical London, traditional London uh, listed property company, well-managed, and they, they were attracted to Perth because of the mineral boom that was in the very early stages of, they could see that moving forward and adding value to property. And uh, 
they came and did two major projects in Perth. One was the St Martin City Centre, which is between St George's Terrace and Hay Street, which Milner and Company put together for them and managed and provided all the professional services. The other one was the Karanup Shopping Centre, which has just reopened, I think, after about three quarters of a billion dollars being spent on it by AMP Capital. Karanup was my baby. I was assigned by Milner and Company to do Karanup, which absolutely suited me fine. Uh, I negotiated with the RNI Bank to acquire the site. I remember we paid $1,145,000 for it, 22 acres, which turned out to be too small, but because it's, it's now been a very urbanised and dense development area. And uh, we let a contract to AB Jennings for $7.5 to build the first stage, which comprised two department stores. One we leased to Bones, three stories of about... $25,000 uh, 25, square metres a story, so quite big, and the other one to David Jones. And it was, it was anchored on the other mall by a, a major Woolworth supermarket with about 30 small shops. Been a great success as a retailer, as a retailing location. Uh, St Martin needed to raise some money from the banking industry and they needed to have a market survey done. Well, nobody was doing market surveys. So one of my friends in another, in another agency had uh, got a market survey done for a shopping centre, quite a small shopping centre he was doing. So I asked him for a copy of the report done by some Sydney professional who'd been flown over. And uh, I read this report and I it was all pretty logical to me and I could see the, 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 the matrix of, of things that came together to come to the conclusion and the conclusion was logical. So I went to the technical library and got what, any textbooks I could on market research, which was very little at the time. And uh, I did the market research for Karina and designed the centre on the basis of that market research, the number of square metres of supermarkets, uh, department stores, each category of retailer, and it worked out, worked out pretty well. They got their money, and we opened it on this September the 14th, 1974. So I started doing that about 1969, perhaps 1970, we bought the site. The architects were Cameron Chisholm and Nickel. They were a local firm that we had a very close relationship with, and St Martin's agreed to engage them. And so that was a great part of my part of my professional development. Uh, my role was basically development management, get, get, the, get the thing built on budget and on time and get it open. Uh, I subsequently did another, another uh, shopping centre for A.B. Jennings' developer down at Quinana called Quinana Hub. That was a bit more difficult, low socioeconomic area. Etc. But it's worked, and it's. I remember we 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 got all the landscaping completed, and and we left the site about eight o'clock the night before we we're due to open. We came back at eight o'clock in the following morning, 
the opening ceremony was going to be at 10.30, all the landscaping's gone. Somebody's come in with a, a truck and picked up all of our plants and taken them away. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, these things happen in that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I am fast-forwarding a little bit, but I thought um, it'd be timely to start talking about Leicester Group, which is your family investment and development business, which was established in or around about 1995. Give us an insight into the structure of the business, the investment methodology, and then how it's grown over the past 25 years. Well, I think the, an important segment here is growth equities mutual because that's, that preceded that day. Well, growth equities mutual, I became very interested in property trust at Milner & Company because we had this big client, St. Martin's, which the company became very dependent on. And we needed another client. And all the partners were, we'd have a partnership meeting and we'd say, well, we've got to get another client. But how do you do that? Where are they? So I thought a property trust might solve that problem. Well, it was before its time. We spent quite a, I, I finally sold the other partners. Mary Monday had one eighth share. And the other partners were more senior to me. They reluctantly agreed that we put resources in, get a trustee registered, launch a prospectus, etc. But we just didn't have the resources to do it. It was, was before its time. We got a couple of investors in. We made a, a purchase of an investment, but our distribution system was not nearly mature enough. We had difficulty marketing the units. And... Candidly, it failed. So, of course, I then leave Milner and Company, go go, go developing with Stan, etc. Stan Perrin, etc. And but I've never ever lost my the belief that that's where we need to go in the future. And uh, in 1978, Greg and I sat down and we decided that this was the time where we sort should start picking this up again. And I came in contact with a person who became a great friend of mine called Richard Warren, who was a young lawyer with one of the very established blue collar or blue, blue ticket firms here in Perth called Parker and Parker, now being subsumed into Freehills and whatever they're called today. And uh, Richard and I sat down and we designed a, a split trust, which was absolutely new, where we had growth units and income units. And the concept was that we would invest this, we would invest trust monies in income earning, established income earning property. Because we had two classes of units, we could gear up income to income unit holders, at the same time gear up growth to growth unit holders by taking the portfolio income, which we balance on a quarterly basis, and we would distribute that income 75% to, to the income unit holders, 15% to the growth unit holders, so they got some income, and 10% of the income went to the manager. <clears throat> and as we grew, our portfolio increased, and we divided the portfolio into four broadly equal segments in terms of value, and we, we revalued each of those pr properties on a 12-monthly basis. But we had them. We had them located in separate quarters, 
So we had some, hopefully you get some, hopefully you get some growth out of the portfolio. You bring that to account and 75% of that growth went to the growth unit holder. 15% of the growth went to the income unit holder. And we used to market that on the basis that they got some growth to offset inflation, which was very, very high at the time. And you got it right. 10% of the growth went to the manager. And the manager received those that growth through an issue of, of units. And we had the opportunity of nominating whether we took income units or growth units. And we exercised that, that prerogative by taking the units in the, the lesser represented class. Because the, the, the program works best if you've got 50% of your value in growth units and 50% of your value in income units. Now that never, it never gets to that because it's always a bit more or a bit less. But we, 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 we always took them in the lower represented class. We agreed that we wouldn't issue any units in any class if that, if that issue took that class, took the other class less than 25% of the total capital. But that really, if you just do the maths there, it's a beautiful thing because you can, in, in, you can enhance income to income unit holders. You can enhance growth to growth unit holders. You can give the growth unit holder a little bit of income, which is always a nice thing to happen. And you can give the income unit holder a little bit of growth to offset inflation. You can do the whole thing without a mortgage. So you're in total control of your property. And we marketed that very strongly. And Greg absolutely was enthusiastic about it, as I was. And uh, we, were, we had first mover advantage. Paul Terry came on as an investment advisor. We marketed through the investment advisory network. We, we were, they were commission motivated. Dirty word today, but in 1981, it was all good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we really went forward very well. We uh, then launched the property securities funds, the growth equities property securities fund. Same structure, but the investment base was property trusts and property companies listed on the ASX. Uh, I must say that that was a very unsophisticated market at that time. It's developed itself terrifically since then. But at that time, in order for them to progress forward and get additional capital to go and buy that next shopping centre or build that next office building, as they were doing, they had to issue units for cash and they had to do that at a discount. And that meant whenever you issue units, whenever you issue a share or a unit at discount, it dilutes the, 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 the present unit office. And we said, we will launch this property trust for mum and dad investment. And one of our policies is subject to availability of cash. We will always subscribe for every issue of the event so that you won't get diluted. And so that was a very good motivation. We were able to sell that to the investment advisory network and they in turn sold it on to their customers, earning nice commissions on the way through. And that was a great success. Of course, we then got to July the 13th, 1990, when <clears throat> just forgotten his name, uh, knew him very well. He was the chairman of the 
ASIC, the forerunner of the ASIC, called the ASC. And he went on Sunday morning television, the 13th of July, 1990 was a Sunday. And he went on national television, ABC, and said he was very concerned about the valuations of the unlisted property trust industry. And that was a time when the whole industry came under pressure with redemptions. There were four or five players, three or four key players, other peripheral players. All of the other trusts were growth trusts. They had, a, had growth that they had units which only performed as growth as, as a growth investment because they had a portfolio which was subject to a mortgage. And uh, we had no mortgages. And on the 15, on the 13th of July, 1990, for the previous six months, I'd been very concerned about the quality and value of properties that were being offered to us. And we hadn't made a commitment to any new, new properties for quite a while. And that became a bit of an embarrassment. And I went into this program with $256 million of subscribed capital coming in every day in the bank. So we were in a very strong, and we didn't have a mortgage, all right? So we didn't have, we didn't have anybody that was, had any influence over the property decisions that we were going to make. And uh, we stayed open for a long time. All of our competitors, Armstrong, Jones, Ostwide, they all closed quite, quite quickly. They couldn't handle the redemptions. They didn't have the money to handle the redemptions. They couldn't sell the property at, at a, unless it fire sale price. And that takes time and they, they just closed. And we stayed open for quite a long time, but we became the banker to the industry. Everybody, the, the investment advisory network had given spread and satisfied their need to give investment spread by having a bit of Ostwide, a bit of Armstrong Jones, a bit of Growth Equities Mutual, et cetera, et cetera. And all these other ones were closing. So we became the bank of the industry. We had to close. And we called meetings of our unit holders in every city. We invited them all to come along and we told them that we owned the properties without a mortgage. The tenants were in position and paying rent and they were up to date or they were exactly exactly the detail of where they were up to date on that day and that the distribution is going to take place on this date. And yes, the property values might change, but their investment is not under threat. We stood in front of them, gave them the facts, gave them the spiel, and we answered every question. And we made sure that at an appropriate time where we judged that we should be winding up the meeting. We brought out the sandwiches and the coffee and made sure that there were some nice sausage rolls and party pies that wafted through the meeting room. The, 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 the smell wafted through the meeting room and everybody went home. I can't say satisfied, I can't say happy, but knowing that they had been told A, the truth, and B, nothing had been held back. And I'm really proud of what, how, we, how we handled our unit holders. In, in a property trust, particularly a retail property trust, where you've got mum and dad investors, another very important component is the trustee. And our trustee was the West Australian trustee. And we set up meetings at 11 o'clock every morning with the, with the staff of the trustee, with the executive staff of the trustee, 
to inform them about how we're reading the play today, how many redemptions we've got to deal with, what the situation is. And we met at 11 o'clock every day. And I instituted meetings between our board and the board of the West Australian Trustee Company during the very difficult period, monthly. Then it blew out to quarterly as everybody settled down. But this communication was absolutely important. And Greg was very good at that, very good at telling people the way it was. If they just understand the way it, the way it really is and they're satisfied that the people in control understand what they're doing, well, the whole thing settles down. It wasn't easy, but we got through. We did close and uh, we responded to the closure by launching the Growth Equities Retail Property Trust as a listed property trust, putting all our shopping centres into one trust. We found a way of doing that without uh, incurring a, tax, a taxable event. Of course, during this period, in 1983, we got a capital gains tax, which was new. It wasn't with us when we launched. Didn't expect it to happen, but it did happen. It came in in October 1983. And, uh, of course, it changed a damn good idea to not such a good idea with the growth unit holders now being, which were tax-free, now being taxed. Of course, everybody accepts that now. And I think if we ever, if Lester Group ever launched a, a trust again, we'd do a split trust. I reckon it's a great system and uh, you, it's just something that's worthwhile. That's how that happened. Then Greg felt that he needed to be developing his own family assets quicker than his interest in growth equities mutual was providing him to do. And our relationship continued to be good, but his interests started to diverge and he decided to move to other fields. And of course, his history has been recorded in the Sydney and Melbourne market, whereas I've stayed in the Perth market. And tell me about Lester Group and, uh, and the, the history of the business and then the investment methodology. Well, in July 1994, I received an approach from Len Lease to buy Growth Equities Mutual Limited, which was the manager of the Growth Equities Mutual Property Trust and the Growth Equities Mutual Securities Fund, um, which I accepted and uh, I came back to Perth. The settlement took place on the 23rd of July, 1994, and uh, came back to Perth and really took 12 months off because there'd been a lot of examples in the market of people selling successful businesses, getting a number of million dollars for into their personal, in their personal wealth, but had invested it unwisely, had succumbed to the next sales bloke that came along with a good story and just didn't do well, made the wrong decision. So I said, my door's closed for 12 months. My wife was going through cancer at the time and it allowed me to look after her. And uh, so that was a very timely opportunity in my life. So we, we brought, we came back to Perth and we established in 1995, mid-1995, we established Leicester Group Proprietary Limited, which is developed and morphed into a family office where we, it's got three main business businesses. We have uh, a group of long-term residential subdivisions where everything 
at this point of time is in Western Australia. So the subdivisions are all 100% on our own balance sheet. We have a, uh, a property syndication business. We have a few. We have a few family investments in office property and commercial property, but it's mainly a family syndication business where our friends and relatives invest with us. We're the keystone investor. We're the, the syndicator. We manage it actively. The investors uh, take a passive position. And we've just started a new business called Eden Life, which is a lifestyle village business where our product is security, lifestyle as friendship. There's a lot of lonely people out there in the world. And of course, affordability. What the lifestyle village industry does is, is lease the land to the occupier on which they put their house, not sell the land. So the, the industry dynamics really work on the basis that the total ingoing, which includes the purchase of their house, plus their, their share, plus the, the uh, recovery of the, the capital put into the facilities, the common facilities, plus the operation costs provided as a rent. And there, and because our market are social security recipients, primarily, we have a range of people, but primarily social security recipients, they're, they're subject to rent subsidy from the federal government. So, so the product we're marketing is security, friendship, and affordability. And it's in a package called the Lifestyle Village. And some questions to sort of round out our discussion. I want to get your opinion on what are the, the fundamentals that you look at internally prior to acquisition across any sector? Quality property with compelling returns. That's the only answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of key metrics, what's your perspective on cap rates and do you think they'll continue to fall in the short to medium term? I think that cap rates are going to stabilise. They're going to stabilise because inflation is starting to happen around the world. I think the, as I've said earlier in this interview, that the risk on interest rates is on the upside. And I think that risk is going to become real. And I think we're, I don't think we're going to go back to seven and eight or 10%, but I think there's going to be a gradual lift. And the main reason why it's not going to go back to 10% is that there's so much money around the world. You know, there is competition for income and that money will flow in to, to whoever's providing the best interest rate, be it a banking corporation, be it a fund or whatever. So, and that, that supply of money will keep a cap on the interest rate. But I think that it's going to start moving up incrementally over the next starting in the next three to six months and progressively go on for a couple of years. Beyond that, I can't tell. The majority of assets held in the portfolio are spread mostly, I think, across metropolitan Perth and Fremantle. What, uh, where do you see the next stage of growth? You mentioned large format retail in Sydney. Do you see any opportunities for, say, land subdivision in Melbourne or to get in on the high rise, you know, luxury apartment boom that's going on in the Gold Coast, or are you pretty comfortable staying where you are geographically speaking? Our subdivision business is not syndicated. The subdivision business is too long. If you take on a big subdivision, it's too long. It's beyond the view of private investors 
they want an investment that they can see their way out of in six or eight years. And with a subdivision, you can never be confident what the term is. You can make the best decisions given you, you, the judgment of the facts at the time, but the market, so many of these subdivisions go through several cycles of the market and the terms of those cycles are too hard to foretell. So we only do subdivisions 100% on our own balance sheet and we, 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 we tend to concentrate in the market that we know, and that's the West Australian market. We're not really looking for subdivisions outside of West Australia. Obviously, the industrial market has been one of the country's top performing real estate asset classes over the past three or so years. Are you still seeing value across this sector of the market or do you share the concerns that some have that it could potentially be overheated or becoming overheated? Uh, I, I think there are some areas that are overheated, particularly those areas where subprime tenants are paying, paying rentals which are considered by the market to be prime. And the, and the, risk, the risk there is high. So we've got to be very careful there. And uh, I'm constantly saying to, to, my, to, my, to my sons and people here, how good a quality is this tenant? Because it's, that's the key to success. And uh, we would love to go uh, back into the Sydney and Melbourne market where we've been very successful in the past, but we've sold out taking very good profits because it's, it's syndicated and you, you, you're in a position where you're offering a very good internal rate of return 17, 20, 22% per annum to your syndicate members. <laughs> you don't know what tomorrow is going to do. You don't know whether Israel is going to send an atomic bomb over to Iran or whatever. These things come out of left field. You know, you never want to be, if you're sitting on a, on a 20% internal rate of return and they've been in it for five or eight years, all right, they're starting to, they're starting to get to where we said we were going to liquidate the property. So you take the opportunity to sell the property. And we've sold out all of our assets in the eastern states. We've tried hard to get back in. Uh, but with COVID, it's been too difficult. We haven't been able to inspect personally. It's just been too difficult. As I mentioned earlier, we've tried to do it by video uh, and by engaging trusted consultants it's not the same. You've got to go and you've got to go and kick the kick the bricks. As you look toward the horizon and twenty twenty two and and beyond, what do you see as the big challenges or risks that lie ahead? I think we've dealt with inflation. We've dealt with the likelihood of of interest rates increasing. We've dealt with subprime tenants risk. I think that says it all. I think that's where the world is, and uh, I think that we're going to have to contend with that world. Now, outside of property, you're a noted philanthropist and patron of the arts, having established the Leicester Prize for Portraiture, in addition to your contributed uh, contributions to education and to health and to medical research. Let's start with the Leicester Prize. How did it come about and, and where's it at today? We've, we're just right in the thick of it, actually, at the moment. Uh, uh, it happens in October, November. Uh, so we've We've just had the presentation of the prize for 2021. 50, this is the 15, 2021 is the 15th Leicester Prize. We started off as we called it the, the Black Swan Prize, borrowing that name from the local drama 
company, state-funded or state-subsidised drama company. And there came a time where we decided we had to change the name. We were growing and there was too much confusion between the name. And people other than me uh, decided that they'd call it the Lester Prize. I, I received a call from a lady who was, an, who was an artist and an art enthusiast who put to me a well-detailed business plan to launch the Black Swan Prize. And uh, we were doing well at the time and I thought it was a good idea. I thought that her passion was commendable and I accepted it for the first year and see how we went. We had 26 entries and it was a West Australian Artists Prize for the first year, mainly entries by Western Australian artists into the Archibald Prize. They hadn't won, but they had been entered into the prize. They may not have even been in the final, in the final group of finalists in the Archibald, but they were entered into the Archibald Prize. We had 26 of them. And uh, we then, that, that was judged to be a success. And then I said to her, Tina, we need to make this Australia-wide. West Australia, this is not to be a West Australian, it's to be located here in WA, it is to be open to all Australian artists. She agreed to that. And uh, she ran the prize as executive. And uh, we looked at the Archibald and we said, how can we do it better? And we identified a number of things. And we developed the, the Leicester Prize, where the 2021 prize had 754 entries in the main prize and 248 in the Emerging Artists Youth Prize. So we've got two major prizes. What we've done is raise money from corporates. We've now got a budget of about $750,000 a year, where we, we have about $140,000 worth of prizes. The main prize gets $50,000. That's the Leicester Prize. We have uh, a valuable prize, which is judged by the all of the artists that make the final. There's only one rule, and that is you can't vote for your own your own picture that's a very popular prize and couldn't be more transparent couldn't be more transparent if the one of the main criticisms of, um, of the archibald is that it's judged by a panel of trustees who may or may not know much about the technique of a portrait i mean they mm -hmm. might not know a lot about art but the technique we're talking about a leading portrait prize here and it's a very specialist subject so we have a, a circulating panel of judges and we've grown it now to that level of entries and it's and that level of we have about eight prizes uh whereas the i believe that the archibald is winner take all at a hundred thousand dollars it's the highest prize i mean if we put ours up to a hundred thousand they'd get a quarter million so we there's no point in doing that we're just doing our thing we're not worrying about what they're doing and it's a good way to be yeah yeah but it's a great passion of mine I like buying the, the, the pictures. It's not an acquisitive prize where the competition acquires the winner. We don't do that. It's a non-acquisitive, but if it's for sale, I'm interested in buying it. The winner this year is for sale, but it's at a price level, which I've got so many portraits here that I've bought over the years <laughs> that I don't need to be paying that sort of, that sort of level. But it's absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. I'm not saying it's not worth it but it's just not, doesn't fit my need. Well, Dick Lester, AM Executive Chairman of Lester Group and legendary real estate investment pioneer, 
And as I mentioned just before as well, a, a very generous person with your time and your resources. Pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to the opportunity of being able to catch up in uh, in Perth and, and take you out for lunch. It's a pleasure to meet you again, Rob, and just keep doing a good work. Thank you very much.